Chapter 11 Jim Simons walked the halls, full of nervous energy. It was the summer of 1997, and Simons sensed he might be close to something special. His medallion hedge fund now managed over $900 million, mostly in futures contracts tracking commodities, currencies, bonds, and stock indexes. Henry Laufer's group, which traded all these investments, was on a roll. Laufer's key strategies, including buying on the most propitious days of the week, as well as the ideal moments of the day, remained winners. Simons's team also had perfected the skill of mapping the two-day trajectories of various investments. Now Simons was becoming convinced Peter Brown and Bob Mercer's 10-person team had turned a corner with its statistical arbitrage strategy, providing Simons with a welcome distraction as he dealt with enduring grief from his son's death a year earlier. Though the stock trading profits were a puny few million dollars a month, they were enough to spur Simons to merge the Nova Fund into Medallion, creating a single hedge fund trading almost every investment. Simons and his team had yet to solve the market, however. Medallion gained 21% in 1997, a bit lower from the 32% results a year earlier, the over 38% gain in 1995, and the 71% jump in 1994. Its trading system still ran into serious issues. One day, a data entry error caused the fund to purchase five times as many wheat futures contracts as it intended, pushing prices higher. Picking up the next day's Wall Street Journal, sheepish staffers read that analysts were attributing the price surge to fears of a poor wheat harvest, rather than Renaissance's miscue. A bit later, Patterson helped roll out a new model to trade equity options, but it generated only modest profits, frustrating Simons. Nick, your options system needs help, Simons told him in a meeting. It needs to be better. Simons pointed to the huge, steady gains that another investor was making trading equity options at his growing firm, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. Look at what Madoff is doing, Simons told Patterson. The criticism grated on Patterson, who gave Simons a tart retort. Maybe you should hire Bernie. A few years later, Simons would become suspicious of Madoff's extraordinary results and pull money he had invested in Madoff's fund. In 2008, Madoff would acknowledge running history's largest Ponzi scheme. Nervous about the slipping returns, Simons proposed a new idea. Each year, tens of thousands of peer-reviewed research papers are published in disciplines including economics, finance, and psychology. Many delve into the inner workings of financial markets and demonstrate methods of scoring outsized returns, yet are left in history's dustpan. Each week, Simons decided, Brown, Mercer, and other senior executives would be assigned three papers to read, digest, and present. A book club for quants with a passion for money rather than sex or murder. After reading several hundred papers, Simons and his colleagues gave up. The tactics sounded tantalizing, but when Medallion's researchers tested the efficacy of the strategies proposed by the academics, the trade recommendations usually failed to pan out. Reading so many disappointing papers reinforced a certain cynicism within the firm about the ability to predict financial moves. Anytime you hear financial experts talking about how the market went up because of such and such, remember it's all nonsense, Brown later would say. 
as he led weekly meetings, chatted with employees, and huddled with Laufer, Brown, and Mercer in their cramped offices in Stony Brook's high-tech incubator, Simons emphasized several long-held principles, many of which he had developed earlier in his career, breaking code at the IDA, and in his years working with talented mathematicians at Stony Brook University. Now he was fully applying them at Renaissance. A key one, scientists and mathematicians need to interact, debate, and share ideas to generate ideal results. Simons's precept might seem self-evident, but in some ways, it was radical. Many of Renaissance's smartest staffers had enjoyed achievement and recognition earlier in their careers toiling away on individual research, rather than teaming with others. Indeed, talented quants can be among the least comfortable working with others. A classic industry joke, extroverted mathematicians are the ones who stare at your shoes during a conversation, not their own. Rival trading firms often dealt with the issue by allowing researchers and others to work in silos, sometimes even competing with each other. Simons insisted on a different approach. Medallion would have a single, monolithic trading system. All staffers enjoyed full access to each line of the source code underpinning their money-making algorithms, all of it readable in clear text on the firm's internal network. There would be no corners of the code accessible only to top executives. Anyone could make experimental modifications to improve the trading system. Simons hoped his researchers would swap ideas rather than embrace private projects. For a while, even the firm's secretaries had access to the source code, though that ultimately proved unwieldy. Simons created a culture of unusual openness. Staffers wandered into colleagues' offices offering suggestions and initiating collaborations. When they ran into frustrations, the scientists tended to share their work and ask for help, rather than move on to new projects, ensuring that promising ideas weren't wasted, as Simons put it. Groups met regularly, discussing intimate details of their progress and fielding probing questions from Simons. Most staffers ate lunch together, ordering from local restaurants and then squeezing into a tiny lunchroom. Once a year, Simons paid to bring employees and their spouses to exotic vacation locales, strengthening the camaraderie. Peer pressure became a crucial motivational tool. Researchers, programmers, and others spent much of their time working on presentations. They burned to impress each other, or at least not embarrass themselves in front of colleagues spurring them to plug away at challenging problems and develop ingenious approaches. If you didn't make much progress, you'd feel pressure, Frey says. That was how your self-worth was determined. Simons used compensation to get staffers focused on the firm's overall success. Every six months, employees received a bonus, but only if medallions surpassed a certain profit level. The firm paid some of the money over several years, helping to keep the talent around. It didn't matter if staffers uncovered new signals, cleaned data, or did other lower-profile tasks. If they distinguished themselves and Medallion thrived, they were rewarded with bonus points, each of which represented a percentage of Renaissance's profit pool and was based on clear, understood formulas. You know your formula from the beginning of the year. It's the same as everyone else's, with just a couple of different coefficients, depending on your position, says Glenn Whitney who was a top manager of Renaissance's infrastructure. You want a bigger bonus? Help the fund get higher returns in whatever way you can. 
discover a predictive source, fix a bug, make the code run faster, get coffee for the woman down the hall with a great idea, whatever. Bonuses depend on how well the fund performs, not if your boss liked your tie. Simons began sharing equity, handing a 10% stake in the firm to Laufer, and later, giving sizable slices to Brown, Mercer, and Mark Silber, who was now the firm's chief financial officer, and others, steps that reduced Simons' ownership to just over 50%. Other top-performing employees could buy shares, which represented equity in the firm. Staffers also could invest in Medallion, perhaps the biggest perk of them all. Simons was embracing immense risk. Hotshot researchers and others were liable to become frustrated working in a flat organization that spread its largesse around and made it harder to stand out. Full access to the system's code enabled staffers to walk out the door, join a rival, and tap Renaissance's secrets. But, since so many of them were PhDs from the world of academia with limited familiarity with Wall Street, Simons believed the chance of defection was relatively small. Unusually onerous lifetime non-disclosure agreements, as well as non-compete contracts, also reduced the danger. Later, they'd learned the agreements couldn't eliminate the risk of employees defecting with the firm's intellectual property. Other than a few old-school traders who completed transactions, many at Renaissance didn't seem to prioritize wealth. When celebrated computer scientist Peter Weinberger interviewed for a job in 1996, he stood in the parking lot, sizing up the researchers he was about to meet. He couldn't help chuckling. It was a lot of old, crappy cars, he recalls. Saturns, Corollas, and Camrys. Some employees didn't know if the fund was making or losing money each day. A few had no idea how to even locate monthly performance figures on Renaissance's webpage. During the few losing streaks Medallion encountered in the period, these oblivious staffers walked around happy-go-lucky, annoying employees more conscious of the troubles. Some employees seemed embarrassed by their swelling wealth. As a group of researchers chatted in the lunchroom in 1997, one asked if any of his colleagues flew first class. The table turned silent. Not a single one did, it seemed. Finally, an embarrassed mathematician spoke up. I do, he admitted, feeling the need to offer an explanation. My wife insists on it. Despite the medallion fund's impressive gains, hiring could present a challenge. Few recruits had heard of Renaissance, and joining the firm meant sacrificing individual recognition to work on projects that never would garner publicity or acclaim, a foreign concept to most academics. To woo talent, Simons, Nick Patterson, and others emphasized the positive aspects of their jobs. Many scientists and mathematicians are born puzzle solvers, for example. So the Renaissance executives spoke of the rewards that come with solving difficult trading problems. Others were attracted to the camaraderie and fast pace of a hedge fund. Academics can slog along for years on academic papers. By contrast, Simons pushed for results within weeks, if not days, an urgency that held appeal. The atmosphere was informal and academic, yet intense. One visitor likened it to a perpetual exam week. At IBM, Mercer had become frustrated with the speech recognition world where scientists could pretend to make progress, relying on what he called parlor tricks. At Renaissance, he and his colleagues couldn't fool anyone. 
you have money in the bank or not at the end of the day, Mercer told science writer Sharon McGrain. You don't have to wonder if you succeeded. It's just a very satisfying thing. The interview process was somewhat ad hoc. Discuss your achievements, tackle some challenging problems involving probability theory and other areas, and see if there might be a fit at the firm. Candidates usually were grilled by a half dozen staffers for 45 minutes each, and then were asked to present lectures about their scientific research to the entire firm. Simons and Patterson generally focused on hiring seasoned academics who boasted a series of accomplishments, or new PhDs with dissertations they deemed strong. Even big-name recruits had to pass a coding test, a requirement that sent a message that everyone was expected to program computers and do tasks deemed menial at other firms. They'd also have to get along with each other. The chemistry is important, says a current executive. It's like joining a family. By 1997, Medallion's staffers had settled on a three-step process to discover statistically significant money-making strategies, or what they called their trading signals. Identify anomalous patterns in historic pricing data, make sure the anomalies were statistically significant, consistent over time, and non-random, and see if the identified pricing behavior could be explained in a reasonable way. For a while, the patterns they wagered on were primarily those Renaissance researchers could understand. Most resulted from relationships between price, volume, and other market data, and were based on the historic behavior of investors or other factors. One strategy with enduring success, betting on retracements. About 60% of investments that experienced big sudden price rises or drops would snap back, at least partially, it turned out. Profits from these retracements helped Medallion do especially well in volatile markets when prices lurched, before retracing some of that ground. By 1997, though, more than half of the trading signals Simons' team was discovering were non-intuitive, or those they couldn't fully understand. Most quant firms ignore signals if they can't develop a reasonable hypothesis to explain them. But Simons and his colleagues never liked spending too much time searching for the causes of market phenomena. If their signals met various measures of statistical strength, they were comfortable wagering on them. They only steered clear of the most preposterous ideas. Volume divided by price change three days earlier, yes, we'd include that, says a Renaissance executive, but not something nonsensical, like the outperformance of stock tickers starting with the letter A. It's not that they wanted trades that didn't make any sense. It's just that these were the statistically valid strategies they were finding. Recurring patterns without apparent logic to explain them had an added bonus. They were less likely to be discovered and adopted by rivals, most of whom wouldn't touch these kind of trades. If there were signals that made a lot of sense that were very strong, they would have long ago been traded out, Brown explained. There are signals that you can't understand, but they're there, and they can be relatively strong. The obvious danger with embracing strategies that don't make sense, the patterns behind them could result from meaningless coincidences. If one spends enough time sorting data, it's not hard to identify trades that seem to generate stellar returns but are produced by happenstance. Quants call this flawed approach data overfitting. To highlight the folly of relying on signals with little logic behind them, 
quant investor David Lineweber later would determine that U.S. stock returns can be predicted with 99% accuracy by combining data for the annual butter production in Bangladesh, U.S. cheese production, and the population of sheep in Bangladesh and the U.S. Often, the Renaissance researchers' solution was to place such head-scratching signals in their trading system, but to limit the money allocated to them, at least at first, as they worked to develop an understanding of why the anomalies appeared. Over time, they frequently discovered reasonable explanations, giving Medallion a leg up on firms that had dismissed the phenomena. They ultimately settled on a mix of sensible signals, surprising trades with strong statistical results, and a few bizarre signals so reliable they couldn't be ignored. We ask, does this correspond to some aspect of behavior that seems reasonable? Simons explained a few years later. Just as astronomers set up powerful machines to continuously scan the galaxy for unusual phenomena, Renaissance's scientists programmed their computers to monitor financial markets, grinding away until they discovered overlooked patterns and anomalies. Once they were determined to be valid, and the firm determined how much money to place in the trades, the signals were placed into the system and left to do their thing, without any interference. By then, Medallion increasingly was relying on strategies that its system taught itself, a form of machine learning. The computers, fed with enough data, were trained to spit out their own answers. A consistent winner, for example, might automatically receive more cash, without anyone approving the shift or even being aware of it. Simons became more enthused about the prospects of his STAT-ARB team, though it still managed a small amount of money. His growing confidence about Renaissance's future spurred him to move the firm into a nearby one-story wood and glass compound, where they each enjoyed a relaxing, bucolic view of the nearby woods. The headquarters featured a gym, lighted tennis courts, a library with a fireplace, and a large auditorium with exposed beams, where Simons hosted bi-weekly seminars from visiting scholars, usually having little to do with finance. The trading room, staffed with 20 or so people, was no bigger than a conference room, but the cafeteria and common areas were expansive, allowing staffers to meet, discuss, and debate, filling whiteboards with formulas and diagrams. As the STAT-ARB stock trading results improved, Brown and Mercer exhibited a new assertiveness around the office, and they began wooing former IBM colleagues to the team. How would you like to sell out and join our technical trading firm? Brown wrote in an email to one IBM staffer. Soon, a half-dozen IBM alumni were contributing to the firm, including the Della Pietra twins. The brothers, known for their massive collection of nutcracker figurines, and Stevens' insistence that colleagues place his name before his brother's on group emails, managed to speed up parts of a stock trading system that relied on multiple programs, a network of computers, and hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Intense and energetic, Brown hustled from meeting to meeting, riding a unicycle through the halls and almost running over colleagues. Brown worked much of the night on a computer near the Murphy bed in his office, grabbing a nap when he tired. Once, as he worked on a complicated project late in the evening, full of manic energy despite the hour, Brown picked up the phone to call a junior associate at home with a pressing question. A colleague stopped Brown before he could dial. Peter, you can't call him, he said. 
It's 2 a.m. Brown looked confused, forcing the colleague to explain himself. He doesn't get paid enough to answer questions at 2 a.m. Fine, let's give him a raise then, Brown replied. But we have to call him. Brown's wife, Margaret Hamburg, had spent six years as New York City's health commissioner, instituting a needle exchange program to combat HIV transmission, among other initiatives. In 1997, Hamburg and their children moved to Washington, D.C., where she took a senior job in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and later would become the commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Brown flew to Washington to be with his family on weekends, but he now seemed to spend even more time at work, creating pressure for other members of his group to match his focus. When I'm away from my family, I just like to work, he explained to a friend after dragging his feet for weeks about meeting for dinner. Analytical and unemotional, Mercer was a natural sedative for his jittery partner. Mercer worked hard, but he liked to go home around 6 p.m. He became involved with more drama away from the office. Several years earlier, Mercer's youngest daughter, Heather Sue, had persuaded her father to accompany her to a football field near their home and hold a toy football on the ground so she could practice place kicking. I thought she'd get this kicking out of her system, he told a reporter. Heather Sue blasted the ball through the uprights, astonishing her father. She became her high school's starting kicker and then enrolled at Duke University, winning a spot on the varsity football team, the first woman on a Division I football roster. The following year, Heather Sue was pushed off the team by her coach, who later admitted to feeling embarrassed that rival coaches were mocking him for having a female kicker. After graduating in 1998, Heather Sue sued Duke for discrimination, winning $2 million in punitive damages. Back at the office, Mercer began to show a new side to his personality. When staffers lunched together, they mostly steered clear of controversial topics. Not Mercer. He hardly spoke during many work meetings, but Mercer turned oddly loquacious over these meals. Some of his comments, such as his support for the gold standard and affection for More Guns, Less Crime, the John R. Lott Jr. book arguing that crime falls when gun ownership rises, reflected conservative beliefs. Others were more iconoclastic. Gas prices are up. We really should fix that, Mercer said one day. Mercer enjoyed goading his colleagues, many of whom were liberal or libertarian, surprising them with views that were becoming increasingly radical. Clinton should be in jail, Mercer said over lunch one day, referring to President Bill Clinton, who was accused of perjury and obstruction of justice in 1998, related to his relationship with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Mercer called Clinton a rapist and a murderer, repeating a conspiracy theory that the president had been involved in a secret drug-running scheme with the CIA. Most of Mercer's colleagues inched away, unwilling to get into a heated debate. Others, like Patterson, a fellow political junkie, remained at the lunch table, debating Mercer. He was stunned a smart scientist could hold opinions with such flimsy support. Over time, Mercer's colleagues would have more reason for surprise. By the mid-1990s, the Internet era was in full swing and activity was heating up in Silicon Valley. On Wall Street, investment banks and trading firms were hiring their own computer pros, high IQ scientists, and mathematics PhDs, 
finally convinced that quantitative strategies could help them score gains. Simons and his team remained mere blips on the industry's radar screen, though. That was partly by design. Simons instructed his troops to keep their tactics to themselves, fretting competitors might adopt their most successful methods. At the NSA, the penalty for leaking is 25 years in prison, Simons liked to tell employees, somewhat ominously. Unfortunately, all we can do is fire you. Brown became borderline maniacal about silencing staffers and investors. Once, when a representative of a large Japanese insurance company paid a visit, the visitor placed a tape recorder on a conference room table so he could play the conversation back later and be sure nothing had been lost in the translation. Walking into the room, Brown saw the machine and nearly had a nervous breakdown. There's a recorder on the table, he said, startling the guest and a Renaissance client representative. Almost convulsing, Brown pulled his colleague out of the room. I don't want anyone recording us, he screamed, appearing a bit frightened. The embarrassed representative had to ask the visitor to kindly turn off his machine. They were going a bit overboard. At that point, no one really cared what Simons and his team were up to. His two largest rivals, Long-Term Capital Management and D.E. Shaw, were commanding the full attention of investors. Founded by John Merriweather, himself a former mathematics instructor, Long-Term Capital Management also filled its ranks with professors, including Eric Rosenfeld, an MIT-trained finance PhD and computer devotee, and Harvard's Robert C. Merton and Myron Scholes, who would become Nobel laureates. The team, mostly introverts, all intellectuals, downloaded historic bond prices, distilled overlooked relationships, and built computer models predicting future behavior. Like Renaissance, Merriweather's group didn't care where the overall market or even individual investments were headed. LTCM's models identified pricing anomalies, often between similar investments, then the Greenwich, Connecticut hedge fund wagered that the irregularities would converge and dissipate. Some of LTCM's favorite trades entailed buying bonds that had fallen below historic levels while selling short, or betting against, similar bonds that seemed overpriced. LTCM then waited for a convergence of the bond prices, profiting as it happened. LTCM grew its positions with a lot of leverage, or borrowed money, to amplify the gains. Banks were eager lenders, partly because the hedge fund eschewed big, risky trades, placing a thousand or so small, seemingly safe bets. Mesmerized by LTCM's all-star team of brainiacs, investors poured money into the fund. After launching in 1994, LTCM gained an average of nearly 50% in its first three years, managing close to $7 billion in the summer of 1997 making Simons's medallion fund look like a pipsqueak. After rivals expanded their own arbitrage trades, Merriweather's team shifted to newer strategies. Even those the team had little experience with, such as merger stock trading and Danish mortgages. After an annual golf outing in the summer of 1997, LTCM's partners announced that investors would have to withdraw about half their cash as a result of what executives saw as diminishing opportunities in the market. Clients lost their minds, pleading with Merriweather and his colleagues, please keep our money. LTCM's models weren't prepared for several shocking events in the summer of 1998, however. 
including Russia's effective default on its debt and a resulting panic in global markets. As investors fled investments with risk attached to them, prices of all kinds of assets reacted in unexpected ways. LTCM calculated it was unlikely to lose more than $35 million in a day, but it somehow dropped $553 million on one Friday in August of that year. Billions evaporated in a matter of weeks. Merriweather and his colleagues dialed investors, trying to raise cash. Confident prices would revert to historic norms, as their models predicted. Reality sunk in when Merriweather visited a friend, Vinnie Matone, a veteran trader who favored black silk shirts, weighed about 300 pounds, and wore a gold chain and pinky ring. Where are you? Matone asked bluntly. We're down by half, Merriweather said. You're finished, Matone replied, shocking Merriweather. When you're down by half, people figure you can go down all the way, Matone explained. They're going to push the market against you. You're finished. So it was. As LTCM's equity dropped under $1 billion and its leverage skyrocketed, the Federal Reserve stepped in, scared the fund's collapse would take the financial system along with it. Prodded by the Fed, a consortium of banks took control of the fund. In a matter of months, Merriweather and his colleagues had lost nearly $2 billion of personal wealth. Marks on their careers they would never erase. The fiasco soured investors on the whole idea of using computer models to trade in a systematic way. The reputation of quantitative investing itself has been dealt long-term damage, Business Week magazine judged a month later. Even if these quants do spring back this autumn, it will be impossible for many of them to claim that they can reliably produce low-volatility profits. D.E. Shaw didn't seem likely to feel much impact from the troubles. By 1998, the hedge fund started by former Columbia University computer science professor David Shaw, with backing from investor Donald Sussman, had grown to several hundred employees. Building on the statistical arbitrage stock strategies Shaw had developed at Morgan Stanley, his company claimed annual returns of 18% on average since launching. On some days, it was responsible for about 5% of all trading on the New York Stock Exchange. The fund's portfolio was market neutral, impervious to the overall stock market's ups and downs. D.E. Shaw embraced a different hiring style than Renaissance. In addition to asking specific technical questions about an applicant's field of expertise, the firm challenged recruits with brain teasers, situational mathematical challenges, and probability puzzles, including the famed Monty Hall problem, a brain teaser based on the old television show Let's Make a Deal. Employees, many of whom were fans of the British science fiction television show Doctor Who, dressed informally, breaking Wall Street's stiff mold. A 1996 cover story in Fortune magazine declared D.E. Shaw the most intriguing and mysterious force on Wall Street, the ultimate quant shop, a nest of mathematicians, computer scientists, and other devotees of quantitative analysis. As Shaw and other quant firms expanded, the New York Stock Exchange was forced to automate, an electronic stock exchange evolved, and eventually stocks were traded in penny increments, reducing trading costs for all investors. Shaw began spending time away from the office, advising Vice President Al Gore and President Bill Clinton on technology policy. His firm also embraced new endeavors, 
launching Juno, the first free email service, and forming a joint venture with Bank America Corporation to borrow $1.4 billion. D.E. Shaw's hedge fund leveraged some of that money into a bond portfolio worth $20 billion, while pushing into still more new businesses, such as an internet bank. Flush with cash, Shaw hired over 600 employees, housing them in cutting-edge offices in New York, Tokyo, London, San Francisco, Boston, and a spot in Hyderabad, India, featuring a sculpture-filled atrium. Then came the market turmoil of the fall of 1998. Within months, D.E. Shaw had suffered over $200 million in losses in its bond portfolio, forcing it to fire 25% of its employees and retrench its operations. D.E. Shaw would recover and reemerge as a trading power, but its troubles, along with LTCM's huge losses, provided lasting lessons for Simons and Renaissance. Patterson and others dissected their rivals' sudden setbacks. Medallion gained 42% in 1998, and the fund benefited as other investors panicked in the fall. But Patterson had to make sure his firm wasn't making the same mistakes as LTCM. Patterson knew Renaissance didn't borrow as much money as Merriweather's firm, and LTCM's trades needed to work within a certain time frame, unlike those favored by Simons. Renaissance hired mathematicians and computer scientists, not economists, another factor that distinguished it from LTCM. Still, there were enough similarities to warrant a search for deeper lessons. For Patterson and his colleagues, the LTCM collapse reinforced an existing mantra at Renaissance, never place too much trust in trading models. Yes, the firm's system seemed to work, but all formulas are fallible. This conclusion reinforced the fund's approach to managing risk. If a strategy wasn't working, or when market volatility surged, Renaissance's system tended to automatically reduce positions and risk. For example, Medallion cut its futures trading by 25% in the fall of 1998. By contrast, when LTCM strategies floundered, the firm often grew their size, rather than pull back. LTCM's basic error was believing its models were truth, Patterson says. We never believed our models reflected reality, just some aspects of reality. D.E. Shaw and LTCM also had drifted into markets the firms didn't fully understand or had little experience in. Danish mortgages, online banking. It was a reminder for Simons' team of the need to hone their approach, not enter new businesses. For all of the work Brown, Mercer, and others had put into their system, stock trading still contributed only about 10% of the firm's profits in 1998. It was Henry Laufer's futures trades that powered Renaissance, even as Simons pushed the equities team to improve their performance. As usual, David Magerman wanted to be the hero who would change all that. Magerman had been the one who managed to locate and fix the computer bug that had prevented Brown and Mercer's stock trading system from profiting. Subsequently, Magerman was given more responsibility, emerging as the architect of the software Medallion used for its production or its actual stock trades. Now he was the watchdog of all changes to the system, a crucial player in all its improvements, and the boss of a dozen PhDs. Magerman was on a clear roll. He was well paid. Even better, 
His work garnered treasured praise from Brown, Mercer, and Simons. Magerman used his swelling pay to upgrade his wardrobe, and even began wearing suspenders, trying to look like Mercer. Winning approval from dominant male figures had long motivated Magerman, and the appreciation he was receiving thrilled him. Despite his growing success, Magerman detected a certain iciness from Mercer's family, especially Mercer's middle daughter, Rebecca, who had joined Renaissance and worked for Magerman. There were no more outings to restaurants or invitations to the Mercer home, perplexing Magerman. At one point, he wrote a five-page letter, hoping to renew the friendship, but he got no reply. He couldn't figure out what had happened. He examined the possibilities. Perhaps it was the time he publicly berated Rebecca, his boss's daughter, mind you, over her work in the trading group, embarrassing Rebecca in front of her new colleagues. I thought it was well-deserved, Magerman says. The rift also could have resulted from the firm's summer outing, when Magerman took Heather Sue out for a romantic canoe ride, a move he was sure had left Becca jealous. For whatever reason, Mercer's daughters and his wife, Diana, now wouldn't speak to him. I was persona non grata in their house and at family-hosted events, he says. To stay in Robert Mercer's good graces, Magerman decided to focus on his work. In 1999, Magerman developed a way to tweak the computer code governing the firm's stock trading, making it more efficient. Almost immediately, however, Medallion's futures trades went from winners to losers. Staffers scrambled to understand what had happened, but Magerman knew. He had made a careless mistake and unleashed a powerful bug that was infecting the firm once again. I caused this. For weeks, Magerman beat himself up, wondering how he could have committed such a dumb error. True, Magerman's stock trading group didn't share much computer code with Henry Laufer's futures staffers, but Magerman was sure he somehow was the culprit. Unwilling to acknowledge his mistake this time, Magerman worked through the night, but failed to find his bug. As the quarter ended, Medallion told clients it had suffered a slight but surprising loss, its first quarterly downturn in a decade. Racked with worry and waiting to be fired, Magerman could hardly sleep. I was losing my mind, he says. Magerman met with a therapist who diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder, starting him on weekly sessions to calm his nerves. Slowly, Medallion's returns rebounded, and Magerman allowed himself to relax, concluding that he probably hadn't been responsible for the losses after all. In January 2000, Medallion surged 10.5%, the hedge fund's best one-month return in years. By early March, the fund was sitting on over $700 million of profits as the NASDAQ Composite Index reached a record amid a wave of enthusiasm for technology stocks, especially internet-related companies. Then came true trouble for Magerman and his colleagues. The tech bubble burst on March 10th, sending shares plummeting, with little news to account for the shift in sentiment. A month later, the NASDAQ would be down 25%, on its way to a full 78% drop from its peak. Medallion faced inexplicable losses. It lost about $90 million in a single day in March. The next day, it was $80 million more. Nerves began to fray. Until then, Medallion had never lost more than $5 million in a day. It wasn't just the mounting losses that had everyone concerned. 
it was the uncertainty over why things were so bad. The medallion portfolio held commodities, currencies, and bond futures, and its stock portfolio was largely composed of offsetting positions aimed at sidestepping broad market moves. The losses shouldn't be happening. But because so many of the system's trading signals had developed on their own through a form of machine learning, it was hard to pinpoint the exact cause of the problems or when they might ebb. The machines seemed out of control. Amid the sell-off, a recruit visited the Long Island office to interview with Patterson and several colleagues. When they met to discuss the candidacy the next morning, not a single person remembered even meeting the recruit. The losses had left the researchers in an utter daze. Mercer remained stoic, interacting with colleagues as if nothing unusual was happening. Not Brown. He had never experienced deep, sudden losses, and it showed. High-strung and emotional, Brown couldn't hide his building fears. Unable to sleep, Brown spent the night checking his computer to get updates on the troubles. Around the office, Brown looked pale, his lack of sleep showing shocking colleagues. Friends said he felt responsible for the losses since they emanated from his stock trading system. On the third day of the meltdown, Magerman drove to work, checked the level of stock futures on his computer, and received a fresh jolt. Another absolutely awful day was ahead. Magerman turned slightly nauseous. Brown and Mercer were already in an emergency meeting with Simons and other top executives, but Magerman felt the need to alert them to the escalating problems. He slowly opened a heavy door to a small, cramped conference room packed with a dozen executives, a video conference screen showing the faces of others around the globe. At the head of a long table sat Simons, grim and focused. Magerman bent low, whispering into Brown's ear. We're down another 90 million. Brown froze. Medallion's losses now approached $300 million. Brown was distraught, even fearful. He looked at Simons, desperate for help. Jim, what should we do? Simons tried to reassure Brown and the other executives, expressing confidence their fortunes would improve. Trust the model, Simons told them. We have to let it ride. We can't panic. Later, Simons reminded staffers that their trading system was prepared for trying times. Besides, there was little they could do. Medallion trades about 8,000 stocks. There was no way they could quickly revamp the portfolio. After several more all-nighters, a couple of researchers developed a theory about what was causing the problems. A once-trusted strategy was bleeding money. It was a rather simple strategy. If certain stocks rallied in previous weeks, Medallion's system had taught itself to buy more of those shares, under the assumption the surge would continue. For several years, this trending signal had worked, as the fund automatically bought NASDAQ shares that were racing still higher. Now the system's algorithms were instructing Medallion to buy more shares, even though a vicious bear market had begun. Simons often emphasized the importance of not overriding their trading system, but, in a market crisis, he tended to pull back on the reliance on certain signals, to the chagrin of researchers who didn't believe in ever adjusting their computer programs. Now even those staffers were fine dumping their faulty signal, especially since their system did a better job predicting short-term moves, not the longer-term ones on which the defective signal focused. They quickly ditched the momentum strategy, stemming the losses. Soon, 
Gains were piling up once again. Brown remained shaken, though. He offered to resign, feeling responsible for the deep pain. Simons rejected the offer, telling Brown he was even more valuable now that he had learned never to put your full faith in a model. By the fall of 2000, word of Medallion's success was starting to leak out. That year, Medallion soared 99%, even after it charged clients 20% of their gains and 5% of the money invested with Simons. The firm now managed nearly $4 billion. Over the previous decade, Medallion and its 140 employees had enjoyed a better performance than funds managed by George Soros, Julian Robertson, Paul Tudor Jones, and other investing giants. Just as impressive, Medallion had recorded a sharp ratio of 2.5 in its most recent five-year period, suggesting the fund's gains came with low volatility and risk compared with those of many competitors. Letting his guard down, Simons consented to an interview with Hal Lux, a writer at Institutional Investor magazine. Over coffee in his New York office, and later while sipping gin and tonics at Renaissance's Long Island headquarters, Simons expressed confidence his gains would continue. The things we are doing will not go away, Simons told Lux. We may have bad years, we may have a terrible year sometimes, but the principles we've discovered are valid. Brown, Mercer, and Laufer were just as confident that a rare, even historic opportunity was at hand. They pushed to hire new employees to take advantage. The markets are dripping with inefficiencies, a senior staffer told a colleague. We're leaving money on the table. The new hires would transform the firm in ways Simons and his colleagues never could have anticipated.